the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Gair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadasha, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and a portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not known, had not, excuse me, had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bingham and Teres, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, and this became to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the, on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Oh God, we pray that you might come upon us with your power and might. We pray, Lord, that you might deliver us from our deepest fears. We pray that you might deliver us from our, from our uh, lingering shame. We pray, oh God, that you might uh, turn our face toward you, that we might understand who we are. And we trust, as you've been doing this the whole service, you'll be faithful now, even through my, um, through this jar of clay, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have been studying what it means to be a faithful ambassador, 
or a representative in God's world, whether it's at the office, at school, on the block, on the stage, on the platform, whether you are a staffer, a plumber, a lobbyist, a mother. What does it look like to be an ambassador, to represent God? And if you accept that assignment, you will find that you have to live between two worlds. Between two worlds. One are the values of the society that you're in, as well as the values of the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And you need skill to do that. It's, it's an art to do that. And we see that modeled in people like Joseph and Esther and Daniel. The great uh, sociologist and author, W.E.B. Du Bois, he talked about this concept of what he called cultural frame switching. And that is, if you're a bicultural person here, right, you're a Korean-American or Hispanic-American, you know well that skill where you have to adjust and adapt to the cultures that you enter into. He called that cultural frame switching. And in a sense, it really is a good description of what every Christian has to do in their life. They're constantly going into situations between those two worlds and having to adapt. And it takes you into something that's really tricky, the gray areas of life. You know, you have the things in the Bible that God makes very plain, but then there's this whole sphere of stuff where he doesn't speak to explicitly. And you're relying on the guidance of his spirit or what's called wisdom. For instance, your boss asked you to bring up, uh, to find some negative information on a competitor or someone they're campaigning against. What do you do? Is that just bringing truth into light or is that gossip? Or imagine yourself to be a junior high or high school student going to a party knowing there's going to be underage drinking and use of drugs. Do you go? Do you stay back? Do you support this particular product or join this organization and cause where you believe in the cause, but you don't quite like the way they're going about it? All these gray areas when you want to be a faithful ambassador of God in the world. And the story of Esther brings us into that tension, even in the way it's written. Esther brings before us what you might call the hiddenness of God. Theologians will mention that there is no mention of the name or person of God in the book of Esther. There's reference to prayer and fasting, but no mention of God himself. No God of divine revelation and dreams, no God of thunder and lightning of the Exodus. One person has said it this way, there are neither dramatic miracles or great heroes, just apparently ordinary providence moving flawed and otherwise undistinguished people in exactly the right place at the right time to establish God's purposes. Like the book of Joseph, at the end of it, it's not so much a God on the center stage as a God behind the scenes. And isn't that like our lives? Isn't it like the lives that we live? As much as you may want a dream or thunder and lightning from God, you're often making decisions going, is this the right thing, God? Stepping out in wisdom. But it's also seen through this book in the way that the author holds back moral commentary. 
I mean, was Esther, did she struggle with the fact that she would violate Jewish food laws by being in the palace? Did she struggle with the fact that her job would be to charm the king and provide him with a night of pleasure in his bed? Or marrying a pagan king? Did Mordecai struggle with the fact that he told Esther to hide her ethnicity and her religion? We don't know. We're not told. There's no moral commentary. It sort of just stays there, and so it pulls us into the struggle that they were feeling. The struggle we often feel in our own lives. And so, this evening, I want to talk about, in the time that we have, uh, challenges of living between two worlds, but also the assurances we get. Because just as God is sublime in the book of Esther, not just the challenges, but the assurance are there as well. So we'll start off with the challenges of living between two worlds, and I'll mention three. The first one is intimidation. Now, in many ways, we can experience intimidation. Whether you're outnumbered, whether you're the minority opinion, uh, whether you are someone that actually is a victim of brute force, there are lots of ways that we can feel intimidated. And many groups experience that, not just you know, Christian groups. Many groups experience intimidation. In fact, sadly, at times, sometimes Christians have been the ones that, that have intimidated. But we find it's also a mark of those that follow Jesus. He says in the Beatitudes, and you know, I just love the Beatitudes because they so challenge our definition of happiness in America. You know, the word blessed basically means happy. And you can compare that list against the way we think about happiness, and it's just mind-blowing. But Jesus in that says, blessed when you are reviled, persecuted, and they utter all kind of evil against you. Blessed. Be happy. And if you look at the history of God's people, you see that. The re religious leaders seek to intimidate the apostles. Or this day, the church around the world, those that live in closed societies to the Christian gospel live under intimidation. Even, to some degree, I think Christians feel it in modern America. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicholas Kristof. And a couple weeks ago, he, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And he starts off by saying, listen, I have little, uh, little in common politically, religiously, philosophically with Catholics and evangelicals. Little in common with them. But he expresses concern, especially with the backdrop of the gay marriage debate, about the attitudes of society towards these groups. And he says this, Today among urban Americans and Europeans, evangelical Christian is sometimes synonymous for rube or bumpkin. Then he says this, In liberal circles, evangelicals constitute one of the few groups that it's safe to mock openly. Now, that's a shift in American society that's been happening, but it is not a shift in biblical history. It's not a shift in what Christians have experienced all throughout uh, their lives, whether it's been in the form of whips or the form of words, whether it's the first century or modern day. And just consider for a moment with me how intimidating it was for Esther as a young Jewish woman in this kingdom of Persia under the king. Hasuerus, or his better name known in Greek is Xerxes I. And we know a bit about him, not only from the Hebrew Scriptures, but from the Greek historian Herodotus. So there's, you know, we, we have a pretty good background on the kingdom of Persia during this time. Consider a couple things. One, 
how bad does Persia have to be? How strong and mean do they have to be to conquer one of the most brutal superpowers that ever was established in the world, Babylon? They defeat and conquer Babylon. We'll read about Babylon when we move into Daniel. The extent of Xerxes' kingdom stretched from modern Pakistan to northern Sudan, all the way up to uh, the southern Greek islands. It was a huge area this guy was reigning over. If you were a commoner in that kingdom, you learned that you lived, you had this purpose in life, and that was to serve the king at whatever desire he had. About every year, 500 young men were castrated and forced to be eunuchs for Xerxes. Women as well, and you get a hint of this in Esther's story, were on call to be virgins in his harem. And basically what would happen is he would have, you know, many, many of these women, hundreds of women likely, and he might call upon you to come be with him. And usually you were with the king for one night. That was it. And then he threw you back to the harem. You weren't allowed to return to your family. You weren't allowed to marry. You spent the rest of your days basically, basically secluded in luxury, but secluded, no relationships. That's what the king demanded of the men and women in his kingdom. There were only seven advisors, we're told in chapter 1, that could move into the king's presence freely. Only seven people. You had to be called by name. And that's why Esther later, as we study the story, when Mordecai says, you got to go and plead to the king for our lives, she goes, what are you, crazy? You don't know. Seven people can move into his presence. And you didn't say no to him either. In chapter 1, if we would have had time, we would have read of the story of Queen Vashti. Um, the king is having a huge banquet for all his nobles and officials. And he wants his trophy wife to come out. It actually says, he ordered for her to show up in her crown to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. You know, he's not hiding any objectifying there. And when she refuses... We're told he was enraged, his anger burst within him. He deposes her, takes her crown, banishes her, and some think she may have been executed. We're not sure. But this is what happens when you say no to the king. Now, just for a moment, consider how different that is from Jesus Christ the king, who is the bridegroom of his people, the church. He doesn't use his authority to degrade, but to dignify. He lays down everything to save and to beautify her. At the messianic banquet, which is heaven, she's not exposed to shame in front of everybody. She's exposed to grace upon grace. And that's why those that are husbands key off of him and not Xerxes. And when she does finally resist him, they send an edict throughout the kingdom saying, wives, you better honor your husband. So this is the sort of world that Esther is in. Imagine you are a young teenage girl. You are a minority girl. You are moved into this kingdom within this, with this intimidation. These are the challenges she faces. Not to mention next week, we'll read about the king allowing an edict that would have genocide occur in the Jewish community to wipe them out completely. But the challenges are not just intimidation. They're also temptation in the terms of affluence. Let me describe for you just a picture, a visual picture, of this palace. Try to put yourself there visually and mentally. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, marble pillars, 
couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, in vessels of different kinds. That means every time you got a new drink, you got a new golden goblet. And then on top of that, the royal wine was lavished. When Alexander the Great conquered Persia and he walked into the capital city, the historians say that he was stunned by the wealth. 1,200 tons of gold and silver, 270 tons of minted golden coins. This was the wealth that Esther and those that went into that circle saw. And we, you know, we read a little bit of the, the spa of your dreams, right? Twelve months of being treated with, you know, the best cosmetics there were, the most expensive, uh, the rarest things, and they were given whatever. You know, affluence can be a real temptation. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned uh, the movie Unbroken. And if you saw that movie, you know, it tells the true story of Louis Zamperini, who was a POW, World War II in Japan. And this is a true part of the story when Zamperini was basically wasting away, getting beaten and living in terrible conditions in the camp. They know he's an ex-Olympic athlete, so they see him as strategic. They pull him out of the camp, allow him to shave, clean him up, put him in a nice uniform, move him to Tokyo, and say, uh, feed him an American meal and say, listen, we'd like to give you the opportunity just to tell your parents that you're alive. And he does that. He is a little worried about what's the trick. He does that. And then they return him to the camp and they ask him back again, again, lavishing on him, you know, food and clothes. And he's introduced to Australian soldiers and English soldiers that as well that are enjoying the food together, only to find out that now they want him to read propaganda. And so affluence has the same thing on our hearts as well. Oftentimes the affluence of our culture will lead us to speak propaganda, <laughs> to speak things that are not true in our minds and in our heads of the kingdom, the society that we believe might be our dream, but isn't our dream. Can you imagine what it was like for Babylon, or rather Persia? Persia was like Babylon in the sense that they didn't usually chain and beat their prisoners. They assimilated them. They let them enjoy some of the pleasures of the society while you were also living under great authority. So, you know, the question comes up, did Esther buckle a little bit? Did she get soft? Did she get swept up in the competition, the beauty pageant? We don't know, but the question hangs there. But even if we don't get the answer, we know it from our own lives, don't we? I mean, it, it's probably true that the greatest hindrance for middle-class American Christians is likely affluence. It's comforts, where the thought of perseverance is not so much, will the gospel of Christ, um, will it shine and go forward, but will my career goals be interrupted? Or will my comfort be limited? So another challenge was this temptation she faced. But lastly, the last challenge I'll mention are consequences. It is very hard to be a faithful ambassador of God if you live with a guilty and noisy conscience. That may be the thing that makes it most difficult to be a faithful representative for God. If we had time to read the story of Israel, we would be able to see how they ended up where they ended up. Exiled, first in Babylon, then in Persia. Israel, the northern kingdom, first by the Assyrians. 
And it was basically, if you know the story, because of their own moral collapse. They turned from God, love of God, they turned from love of neighbor. Their society began to look much like the immorality of the pagan nations with idolatry and rank injustice upon the poor and oppressed. And so the Lord had even told them way ahead of time through Moses this, if you go that way, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, and among these nations you shall find no respite, no resting place for the sole of your foot. The Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. It is hard for us as modern-day folk to really appreciate the psychological and emotional effects the exile had upon Israel. I mean, think about it. They were the chosen nation. The presence of God is in their midst. He establishes them against all odds. Their kings like David and Solomon. The world streams to Solomon for his wisdom. The temple is like a jewel. It was glory days. Glory days. And they're gone. And they're gone because of their own moral failings. And now Esther's living in a time of silence, relatively. God had spoken through the prophets earlier, assuring Israel that because of his name and his glory, he would not forsake his promise. His steadfast love was for them. His promises of grace were for them. He would not yield on that. But you know how we leak grace. I mean, I don't know about you, but every day I'm forgetting God's steadfast love for me. Every day I'm forgetting the riches of his mercy. Every day it's hard to believe for me that God would love me. Or someone said a couple weeks ago that he would even like me. So Esther is living at a time where there's silence from the prophets. And you have to imagine in their minds, boy, it's really hard to be a faithful ambassador when you've got your conscience speaking to you, like some of us. It might be one of the reasons that you are not as effective for God as you could be is because you live between two worlds, the world of God's grace and the world of your own regret and the world of your own lingering guilt that you feel. And the gospel says that when someone gets a hold of Jesus Christ and the promise of his forgiveness, you have been transferred from that world to a new kingdom. Even if psychologically you think you're in both worlds, you have been transferred by God into a new kingdom, a kingdom of love and grace. And so these are the challenges that face faithful ambassadors living between two worlds. But let me just close by hitting a couple of assurances. Two assurances that God gives us that are in this book and in this, I think, uh, passage. One is the assurance of victorious laughter. You know, laughter is a theme that runs through the Bible. Abraham and Sarah or well along in years, they can't have a child. God hinges his promise to Abraham on them having that child. When they have the child Isaac, they name him Laughter. That's what they call him. I mean, his name is Laughter because he brings so much joy. The book of Proverbs talks about the godly woman, and it says that she can laugh at the days to come. She's not worried about all the things about the future, whether it's going gray or, you know, whether it's, you know, what's the future of her family. A godly woman is marked by an ability to laugh at the days to come. But also laughter is characteristic of the wicked because they're known as mockers. They cast derisive laughter over people. 
That's a theme that runs through the Bible. Now, as you read the book of Esther, one thing you see is the use of satire. Satire runs through the book. Now, satire is this. Satire is taking an object of fear and making it look ridiculous. Now, those of you that are familiar with the uh, Harry Potter books or movies, you remember one of the things that the kids learn is the uh, ridiculous, ridiculous curse, where they basically, not curse, charm, spell, whatever it is. But what happens is they, he says, you know, what you have to do is you have to imagine your greatest fear, and they sort of are symbolized in these things called Bogarts, I think. Uh, I may be some of you that are scholars are going to come up afterward, I'm sure, and tell me how I'm wrong, like you totally butchered that. I, listen, I've, I've seen, I think I'm on track here. But anyway, <laughs> but what would happen is this, you'd have to imagine your fear, but it in an amusing form. So if you were really afraid of spiders, you would imagine the spider in roller skates. Okay? Satire does the same thing. It makes the object of fear look ridiculous. We don't know who authored the book of Esther. It may have been Mordecai himself, but it was definitely someone close in to the reign. We don't know exactly when, but it was likely either on the tail end or soon after. This is why this is important. Because it was written after Xerxes had basically fallen. We know from history that the king, this is what happened to him. Like his predecessors, he tried to defeat Greece, and he failed. In his effort to defeat Greece, he starts to drain the treasury, and he starts to lose credibility. And so in chapter 1, the banquet that's being held with all the officials and nobles in the army was likely to consolidate the forces. You know, he was losing credibility. He had to consolidate his base. But we know from history, and it might have even happened in the intervening years between Queen Vashti being gone and Esther being there, we know this, that as he failed and came back as a failure that way, the king threw himself basically into drink and alcohol and having affairs with his officials' wives. And with a tragic irony, in turn, he was assassinated in his own bedroom. That's how he died. So if you are the original audience of the book of Esther, you're hearing the story told, but you already know the ending. So as the pomp and all the opulence and all the riches are being talked about, you're going, ha, it's not going to last for long. And as all the intimidation is going forth, you're thinking, ha, he's going to be murdered in his own bedroom. It's this idea there was a satire that, that the, the readers could appreciate, the reversal of grace. It's the laughter of grace, the way God takes you know, the one that doesn't have a hope in prayer, and he flips things. You hear the theme through the Psalms. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The Lord who sits in the heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I've got my king, don't you worry. Now, if you're familiar with the Jewish faith, you know that the celebration of the book of Esther, Purim, it was celebrated in March, is a big deal, a big celebration all throughout the history. In fact, uh, they derived such strength from it, Adolf Hitler forbade them to celebrate it or to even read the scroll. He was so threatened from the strength that came from it. Now, if strength comes from this story, and it does, when we understand the ultimate reversal, 
there's even greater strength that comes. And what I'm talking about is the gospel story. Jesus Christ is the king of Psalm 2, the one who God has put on the throne. Jesus Christ is the one where it would appear he's mocked in derision. He's laughed at in derision. Remember the, the, um, the thief on the cross, the one that was sort of mocking him, and the other one goes, don't you know who you're talking about? Don't mock him. He's mocked. He dies. His death seems like everything has fallen apart. But what happens? It turns out that death was a great reversal. It was to conquer evil. It was to conquer sin for everybody that trusted in him. It was actually the trigger for the whole renewal of the earth. His resurrection was the outcome of that crucifixion. The gospel story is the great last laugh story. You know the adage, right? He who last laughed lasts longest. The gospel is the greatest last laugh story. And that means for you and I, we need to keep our sense of humor, especially in times of trial and persecution. You've got to keep your sense of humor because it's a sign that you really believe you'll enjoy victory. Or it may be that you're really bummed out about your struggles and your sin. You've got to keep your sense of humor because it's a sign that you ultimately believe that God is going to make you victorious. This is what he offers through the gospel. But very lastly... It's not just victorious laughter, it's gracious guidance. Whether Esther gave in to temptation, we don't know. Whether she struggled at times and thought, I really like this kingdom, don't disturb me, Mordecai, we don't know. We don't know about Esther's complete faithfulness, but we do know this, we know about the faithfulness of God toward her. Because God delights to use her and to honor her, and by that she saves many people. God perseveres in her life. He is faithful through her. And we are reminded for everybody that trusts in the name of Christ, for everybody that grabs hold of the Son of God, he will prevail over your fears and your sins and your doubts. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Amen? That's right. His gracious guidance as we're struggling to be faithful ambassadors. There's a hint of it where we're told about Mordecai unveils a plot against the king. Now, typically, the Persian kings would reward you immediately. He doesn't get a reward. We'll see later in the story why he doesn't, because God is setting up the timing. But God will not forsake us even as we stumble and fall as faithful ambassadors. He will bring his purposes even through us. So there are not only challenges that we face, but there are assurances that we're given. Let's thank him for that, and let's walk in faith as faithful ambassadors. Will you pray with me? Thank you for your salvation story. Thank you for your redemption, God. Thank you for your commitment to work in and through us. In Christ's name, amen.